This is war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug. Flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth come out. Storm the studio. Burnt metal smell of interplanetary war in the raw noon streets, swept by screaming glass blizzards of enemy flak. Shift lingwals, free doorways, cut word lines, photo falling, word falling, breakthrough in gray room. Towers, open fire. Citizen, you are listening to WCBN FM in Ann Arbor. Guilt, blast, pound, stab, strap, kill. Pilot K-9, you are cut off. Back. Return to base immediately. Ride music beam back to base. Stay out of that time, Flack. All pilots, ride pan pipes back to base. Well, good evening and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly media analysis, current events, and general commentary program here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. It's very cold out there. Uh, it's uh, winter for real, folks. And uh, looks like it's just beginning to snow. I don't know what kind of precipitation we can expect tonight, but uh, be aware of that if you're about to head out. And a uh, quick brain damage award to the uh, motorist who I just witnessed uh, take that right turn onto Hill off of Packard from the left turn lane. That's a good move. Uh, anyway... Uh, it's not really a current event, but uh, something to be cautious and alert for out there if you're in traffic. Well, uh, of course, last week I devoted the entirety of the program, or the uh, lion's share of it there, to a recording of Mark Lane discussing uh, aspects of the Kennedy assassination. And while I suppose uh, some listeners uh, may feel that uh, they're saturated with uh, details from that, uh, I've got to spend a little bit more time with it. We may, in fact, talk about it uh, a little bit more when uh, Dick Whaley returns, uh, because he has studied the Kennedy assassination uh, extensively for a number of years and has uh, worked on his own articles about it. Um, but I do want to finish up uh, with a few comments and uh, excerpts from uh, Henry Hurt's book, Reasonable Doubt, uh, regarding the... Uh, personage of Jack Ruby. But if there's time, I would also like to get to Peter Oborn and David Morrison's comment on uh, the uh, attempts between the United States and Iran to uh, broker some sort of normalized relations. And this appeared uh, a month or so back uh, in Harper's Magazine. We'll get to that next week if uh, time does not permit this. But of course, that's the big story um, today. Uh, but uh, 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination is uh, too noteworthy and too uh, important a turning point in our country's history to just sort of say, well, one week and we're done. Uh, so many bizarre details and uh, a lot of uh, programming time devoted to uh, mostly the Lee Harvey Oswald uh, or the sniper aspect of it, uh, the actual shooting of Kennedy. Uh, number of recent studies have been done. In fact, NPR had, uh, I forget their names, but uh, two gentlemen who studied the recordings, who studied ballistics, who studied the, the gun. And their conclusion is that uh, it's entirely possible that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone as the only shooter. And uh, we'll wait to discuss this when Dick returns, because there are a number of other 
uh, sort of problematic eyewitness accounts. Uh, there's aspects of the Zapruder film itself that seem to suggest multiple shooters. Uh, but we're going to move beyond that and just say, well, let's suppose for argument's sake that it was possible for one shooter to get off those shots in that sequence of time. Let's suppose that even further that it was actually Lee Harvey Oswald who did the shooting, uh, neither of which I'm necessarily convinced of, but uh, those are the official findings and conclusions. So let's just suppose for a moment that those are correct and accurate. Uh, that still doesn't really take away the nagging problem of the Jack Ruby intrusion on the story. Uh, and that's received precious little attention on this 50th anniversary go-around. So I'm going to read a few excerpts from, again, uh, Henry Hurt's book, Reasonable Doubt, an investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy. And this first appeared in 1985. And I'm going to be reading from the chapter about Jack Ruby, uh, which will not go into his personal background and, you know, Chicago uh, origins and so forth, but just take it up with uh, this observation. Uh, and I'm reading now from uh, Henry Hurt's book. In 1964, after he was convicted of murdering Oswald and sentenced to death, Ruby was talking in his jail cell with a former employee named Wally Weston. Later, Weston told the uh, House Subcommittee on Assassinations, a mid-70s uh, investigatory body, uh, quote, Ruby was shook, and he said, geez, they're going to find out about Cuba, they're going to find out about the guns, find out about New Orleans, find out about everything, close quote. What did Jack Ruby fear the investigators might find out about New Orleans? In 1963, Ruby spent, for him, an unusual amount of time dealing with people in New Orleans. Of course, Jack Ruby owned a nightclub, strip club in Dallas. Um, traditionally, Ruby had turned to Chicago for his strippers, but in the spring of 1963, found him negotiating with Harold Tannenbaum of the old French Opera House on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Tannenbaum was a key man in running several sleazy operations for associates of New Orleans mob boss Carlos Marcello. Telephone records show that Ruby first contacted Tannenbaum on May 15, 1963. Of course, the other interesting aspect about New Orleans is that, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald was located there for a time with a uh, ostensibly pro-Castro uh, uh, Cuba organization that he was distributing leaflets for. Um, although that happens to have occurred at a time when most uh, members of the American Communist Party were actually uh, FBI undercover infiltrators, so uh, still questions abound. Uh, back to uh, Henry Hurd's book. Uh, there is no question that Ruby was having serious trouble with the entertainment union to which his strippers belonged, the American Guild of Variety Artists. Yes, that's right. Strippers have a union. And it is entirely possible that his New Orleans activities were strictly related to trying to acquire strippers from outside his normal circuit. On the other hand, it is not unreasonable to wonder if Ruby had reached out to New Orleans for some other reason. As autumn settled over Dallas, there was one certainty about Jack Ruby's life. He was in financial, uh, terrible financial trouble. He owed tens of thousands of dollars in back taxes, and the pressures on him were tremendous. Worst, perhaps, was that he remained a loser. As a man of violence, the record of uh, beating w women... Uh, <laughs> particularly, uh, and as a man unconcerned with the laws of society, uh, Ruby was a pawn aching for a master to move him on any chessboard where there was money. Now, of course, that's uh, slightly uh, opinionated prose there, but we'll continue. 
Uh, it is interesting to look at the volume of Ruby's long-distance telephone calls during the seven months preceding the assassination of President Kennedy. In March, Ruby made fewer than 10 toll calls. Uh, toll calls. Uh, long-distance was a big deal back then. From May until September, Ruby averaged 25 to 35 calls per month, but for October and November, the volume of calls escalated tremendously. In October, Ruby placed more than 70 toll calls. The number uh, reached nearly 100 during the first three weeks of November before he was jailed for murdering Oswald. Among the calls never explained were three recorded on November 7th and November 8th to two of Jimmy Hoffa's top henchmen in Chicago and Miami. Of course, Jimmy Hoffa, target of investigations and criminal uh, proceedings from uh, Bobby Kennedy as attorney general. Uh, two of the conversations were with Robert Barney Baker, whom attorney general Robert Kennedy once called Hoffa's ambassador of violence. Two weeks earlier, Ruby telephoned Erwin S. Weiner, a prominent bail bondsman associated with organized crime in Chicago. When the FBI contacted Weiner three days after Ruby's arrest to ask what he and Ruby talked about for 12 minutes, Weiner refused to reveal the nature of the conversation. Years later, uh, the select committee noted that Weiner conducted his activities, quote, at the highest levels of organized crime nationally and in Chicago, close quote. In 1983, when the work of the uh, select committee was uh, completed. Uh, Wiener was with Alan Dorfman, a top Chicago mobster, when Dorfman was shot eight times in the head at close range. Wiener was untouched. A miraculous uh, evasion there. Well, <clears throat> on to it. Few aspects of the assassination have been officially examined more rigorously than the activities of Jack Ruby on November 22, 1963. After the murder of Oswald, numerous stories surfaced that placed Ruby and Confederates in key places to participate in the killing of Kennedy. The silencing of Oswald seems such a natural step in a conspiracy that millions of people assume that Ruby was a player in the earlier acts as well. This assumption in place reports flooded in that Ruby was everywhere. Among the few certainties is that Ruby... Jack Ruby was in the offices of the Dallas Morning News around the time of the assassination. However, one reporter who knew Ruby told the FBI that Ruby was missed for a period of about 20 to 25 minutes before reappearing shortly after the assassination. The newspaper building is situated about four blocks from Dealey Plaza. Ruby was seeing acquaintances at the newspaper to discuss his advertisement for the Carousel Club. Given Ruby's later claim of great devotion to President Kennedy, it seems odd that he did not walk the short distance to watch his idol pass. Uh, the parade route was well listed in the papers. Ruby remained at the newspaper until 1.10 p.m. It has been speculated that Ruby wanted to be in a place and among people who could provide him with an ironclad alibi. That purpose was served. Uh, the next reliable report of Ruby places him at Parkland Hospital around 1.30 Seth Cantor, a respected Washington correspondent who, as a Dallas reporter in early days, had known Ruby, uh, was approached by Ruby at Parkland. Uh, Cantor spoke to him and called him by name. Ruby asked Cantor if he thought he should close his strip joints out of respect for the late president. Ruby later denied he was at Parkland Hospital. The Warren Commission accepted Ruby's word, discounting the reports of Cantor and other witnesses. Years later, the House Select Committee uh, concluded that Cantor was right and Ruby had lied. It is possibly significant that for some reason Ruby, after heralding his presence to Cantor at the hospital, would later deny that he was there. 
Uh, only the wildest speculation has Jack Ruby pulling a trigger in Dealey Plaza. Uh, the important point is whether evidence indicates that Ruby began stalking Oswald on that day. If, as he claimed, Ruby acted out of the passion of the moment in killing Oswald, he could never let himself be perceived as stalking his prey. On the other hand, if Ruby was ordered to silence Oswald, Ruby's behavior between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning should give a clue. The Warren Commission did not look for clues and accepted Ruby's version of his motive. The House Select Committee did try to put the chess uh, clues together and come, uh, came up with a conclusion that was just the opposite. On the eve of President Kennedy's death, Ruby dined at the Egyptian Lounge with his old friend and financial backer, Ralph Paul. The owners of the restaurant, Joseph and Sam Campisi, later confirmed to the FBI that the men had had a late dinner there. Joe Campisi was an influential organized crime figure in Dallas, and one 1967 FBI informant indicated that he was due to take over as the city's mob boss. In 1978, Campisi acknowledged to the House Select Committee that he had known Ruby since 1947, but he changed his story in one interesting respect. He stated, in contradiction to what he had told the FBI in 1963, that he did not see Ruby at the Egyptian Lounge on the eve of the assassination. Campisi's denial of seeing Ruby that night is, if nothing else, another example of the mob distancing itself from the man who silenced Oswald. In any event, Joe Campisi acknowledged that he was on very good terms with Carlos Marcello, noting that each Christmas he sends 260 pounds of Italian sausage to the New Orleans crime lord and his associates. Yum, yum. Evidence of his close connection with New Orleans is cemented by Campisi's telephone records, which noted as many as 20 calls a day from his telephone to various telephone numbers in New Orleans. By 2 p.m. on the day of the assassination, Oswald was in custody on the third floor of the police and courts building. There was bedlam, of course, and the press could be found in every public cranny. Practically no security was in force. Numerous reliable witnesses have placed Jack Ruby on the third floor as early as 4.30 p.m. He spoke and shook hands with people he knew. Telephone records show that Ruby was back at his apartment by 9 p.m., and he was seen later at a synagogue at about 10 p.m. After that, according to the version Ruby gave the Warren Commission, he decided to take some sandwiches up to the police, who were working overtime on the Oswald case. What a nice fellow. Ruby called first and was told the food was not needed. Then, Ruby later explained, he returned anyway to the third floor and mingled with the milling throng of reporters. It was after midnight when Ruby followed the reporters to the basement where Oswald was presented to the press for a brief appearance. The purpose was to assure the press that Oswald had not been abused while in custody. News pictures show Ruby, Ruby seeming to pose as a reporter. Ruby later told the FBI that he had a pistol in his pocket on this occasion, a claim he recanted in testimony before the Warren Commission. Descriptions of the tumultuous scene in the basement during the press conference suggest, as many critics have pointed out, that it was virtually impossible for Ruby to get off a clean shot. This midnight press conference nonetheless yielded one of the most tantalizing and baffling elements of the Ruby story. District Attorney Henry Wade, in briefing the newsmen about Oswald's background, noted that he had belonged to the Free Cuba Committee. 
Upon hearing this, Ruby spoke up and corrected Wade, stating that Oswald had actually belonged to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, FPCC, a group with precisely the opposite goals. How Ruby, at that very early stage, could have been so well-versed in Oswald's murky biography has never been explained or even officially investigated. Despite early press reports about the FPCC, it remains remarkable that Ruby would possess such precise knowledge of the political group Oswald claimed to represent in New Orleans some months earlier. The incident strongly suggests Ruby's prior knowledge of Oswald and his activities, which is not to say that the two were mutually acquainted. It simply means that for some unexplained reason, Jack Ruby knew about Oswald's activities in New Orleans some months earlier, when Ruby was keeping the telephone wires hot. This was information virtually unknown in Dallas on that day, at that hour. The next day, Saturday, Ruby was again busily engaged in activities that can be interpreted as stalking Oswald. He was seen again in the police building where Oswald was being held, and he telephoned a radio station and asked for any news about when Oswald would be transferred. Witnesses have testified that on Saturday, Ruby demonstrated an acute interest in finding out just when Oswald was going to be transferred to the county jail. An NBC producer recalled that Ruby made a nuisance of himself as he tried to follow activities on the third floor by watching the television monitor in an NBC van parked on the street. On Sunday morning, minutes before Oswald's arrival, Ruby joined the teeming crowd of more than 100 policemen and reporters in the basement to see the suspect's transfer. As soon as Oswald came into sight, Ruby burst from the crowd and fired one bullet into Oswald's abdomen at point-blank range. The bullet ripped through the aorta, also striking the liver, spleen, pancreas, and the kidney. It was a stunningly effective shot. Oswald made the famous grimace seen by millions on television and without uttering another word, collapsed. He was declared dead at 1.07 p.m. Well, gangland slayings look very much one like the other. Uh, it seems rather difficult to me to argue your way out of this one, even if Lee Harvey Oswald is the lone gunman this Calculated silencing of Oswald uh, and the lack of a proper follow-up on that aspect of the bizarre details that uh, comprised the Kennedy assassination really, I think, speaks volumes in silence. So we'll just turn the page as uh, we must. Uh, of course, that's 1963, which was the 10th anniversary of 1953's CIA-sponsored uh, coup d'etat in Iran. Uh, an aspect of American-Iranian relations that, uh, amazingly, uh, most congressmen seem to have no knowledge or information about uh, the troubled relations that United States and Iran have had since the fall of the deposition of the Shah and the uh, rise of the Islamic uh, Republic there, uh, do not occur in a vacuum. Uh, they have a background and a context, and uh, the failure to acknowledge this is uh, goes beyond mere ignorance. Uh, the way this attempt by Secretary of State John Kerry to sort of reinvigorate uh, attempts to normalize relations with what is, after all, a major world player in uh, Mideastern affairs um, is a bold move, uh, and it should come as no surprise that uh, 
Obama administration is going to be heavily criticized by the right wing and by uh, Israel uh, for this uh, decision. Uh, I think there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and certainly a knee-jerk reaction that, well, this is going to make life easier for them. They just want to get away from the uh, sanctions. Uh refuses to acknowledge the other side of the arrangement, which is that uh, we now have greater access to their nuclear program. But uh, I'm going to attempt uh, in the next 10 minutes to uh, fly through as much as I can of Peter Oborn and David Morrison's uh, essay entitled Changing Partners. Peter Oborn is a chief political commentator for the Daily Telegraph. David Morrison has written extensively about Britain's role in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, they wrote a book together called Dangerous Delusion, Why the West is Wrong About Nuclear Iran. That was published in September, and this particular article uh, appears in October's Harper's Magazine. And so I will read it to you now. It's called Changing Partners, Can Hassan Rouhani End the Iranian Impasse? Ever since the United States emerged as an imperial power at the end of World War II, it has needed at least one enemy, preferably more. For many years, the Soviet Union played this role to perfection. But the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 created something of a vacancy. And after a series of auditions from possible candidates, Libya, Iraq, and so forth, Iran has come to fill the bill. In truth, Iran poses no conceivable threat. In 2008, the last year for which we have reliable figures, the country spent less than 1% of the amount the United States does on its military, $9 billion versus $650 billion. American intelligence has consistently reported that Iran has no ongoing nuclear weapons program, let alone actual nuclear weapons, of which the United States has nearly 8,000. Nor is the country's reputation for expansionism warranted by the facts. Unlike the United States, which reportedly had forces deployed in some 120 countries last year, the Iranians are believed to be active in just two, Syria and Lebanon. And leaving aside three small islands in the Persian Gulf, claimed by the United Arab Emirates but occupied by the Shah in 1971, Iran has not invaded another country for 175 years. Nevertheless, Iran is now public enemy number one in the United States and also in Britain. When it comes to foreign affairs, of course, it is quite impossible to overstate the ignorance of average American voters, most of whom could not locate Iran on a map. And Tehran's theocratic leaders have had little luck in winning hearts and minds in the West. Dressed up in their robes and turbans and speaking an incomprehensible language, they make for superb hate figures. This widespread ignorance is fostered, if not created, by some exceptionally low-caliber journalism. Let's take the example of the Washington Post, the winner of no fewer than 47 Pulitzer Prizes. Certainly its coverage of Iran entitles the paper to a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. On November 7, 2011, for example, the Post unveiled an online photo gallery with the headline, Iran's Quest to Possess Nuclear Weapons. Only after complaints from readers was this altered to Iran's quest to possess nuclear technology. Apparently the paper had learned its lesson, but just a couple of months later on, January 10th, 2012, a Post editorial asserted, quote, Iran may be feeling some economic pain and may be isolated, but its drive for nuclear weapons continues, close quote. CBS, the largest and most reputable broadcaster in the United States, is prone to the same kind of invention. On November 7, 2011, CBS Evening News anchor Scott Pelley reported that the International Atomic Energy Agency was, quote, expected to report later this week that Iran is on the threshold of being able to build a nuclear bomb, close quote. Uh, 
The IAEA stopped short of any such assertion. Yet on February 6, 2012, Pelley was back at it. Quote, the president, as you know, has been trying to force Iran to give up its nuclear weapons program. Close quote. The assumption, always, is that Iran actually has a nuclear weapons program. NBC and PBS are equally bad. So, for that matter, are such British media outlets as the BBC and the Times of London. This torrent of fabrication has surely helped the United States to wage a low-level uh, war against Iran for at least 30 years, a war that has wrecked the nation's economy with sanctions and given covert support to Iranian-resistant groups. One such group, Mojahedin al-Khak, M-E-K, was collectively classified by the U.S. State Department as a specially designated global terrorist until last year when that designation was yanked following a similar move by the European Union in 2009. Even MEK's former alliance with Saddam Hussein was no longer a problem as long as the group maintained its animus towards the wicked Iranian government. Of course, the Western narrative of Iran is not entirely false. The country has been guilty of horrendous human rights abuses, and some of its leaders have made poisonly anti-Semitic pronouncements. Still, the United States and its clients in Europe, including Britain, have frequently behaved in a far more aggressive and irrational manner. Again and again, Iran has offered the opportunity for a comprehensive peace deal. It did so in the aftermath of 9-11, when thousands of Iranians held candlelight street vigils and the nation's leaders offered practical... Uh, help in tracking down Osama bin Laden. It did so again during the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Both initiatives were brushed aside by George W. Bush, who rewarded Iran's overtures by declaring the country part of the axis of evil. Is there any way to break this cycle? Perhaps. We now have a new Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, who was elected in June and took office in August. Rouhani has replaced Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, whose strident Holocaust denialism lent weight and credence to Iran's critics. And despite the railings of the anti-Iranian media, which has been already hard at work discrediting him, Rouhani is sensible, pragmatic, and, of crucial importance, well-connected in Tehran. If the United States and the West really want a negotiating partner, he is close to ideal. Rouhani's record suggests that he will be more than ready to make concessions. Western diplomats who dealt with him during the crucial period between October 2003 and August 2005, when Rouhani headed his country's nuclear negotiating team, say he is a man of his word, very much contrary to the established image of Iranian negotiators as apocalyptic madmen and cheats. Jack Straw, who met with Rouhani many times as British Foreign Secretary, characterized him as naturally courteous, respectful, and engaged. He's straightforward and pragmatic to deal with, but intensely protective of Iran, its people, and of the Islamic Revolution. And Rouhani's choice for Foreign Minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, a U.S.-educated official known for his fluent English and diplomatic expertise, also suggests that the new president is eager to break the long impasse between the two countries. Let us now look more closely at the events that took place when Rouhani was head negotiator. During this period, Iran was talking with the EU3, Britain, France, and Germany, and the discussions went far beyond the nuclear issue, encompassing the possibility of economic, technological, and political cooperation. The talks culminated in the Paris Agreement, signed in November 14, 2004. This document laid out a roadmap for further negotiations. The EU3 promised to recognize Iran's right as an original signatory to the 1968 Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to enrich uranium for its reactors. 
In return, Iran pledged to provide objective guarantees that Iran's nuclear program is exclusively for peaceful purposes. Rouhani was so keen to close the deal that he suggested voluntary limits on the level of enrichment and the volume of fuel to be produced, an amazing concession. In addition, he proposed the continuous on-site presence of IAEA inspectors at the conversion and enrichment facilities. Sadly, the European Union broke its side of the agreement. Rouhani had warned his European counterparts three times that any proposal that excluded enrichment would be rejected in advance. But as soon as it became clear that a complete and permanent ban on all enrichment and related activities was now the EU3's goal, and there is no doubt that the United States was behind this change in stance. According to Sayed Hussein Musavain, uh, the spokesman for the Iranian negotiating team, the British were completely open with him about the pressure exerted by the Americans. Musavian claims that John Sowers, now head of Britain's MI6, told him explicitly that Washington would never tolerate the operation of even one centrifuge in Iran. Straw went a step further in a recent interview, arguing that American interference, that without an American interference, we could have actually settled the whole Iran nuclear dossier back in 2005, and we probably wouldn't have had President Ahmadinejad as a consequence of the failure as well. There's a few paragraphs remaining in the article, but sadly time has reached that point where I must say that you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor which is not a sad thing at all. That's a very good thing. But it is the end of Gray Matters. And so we will continue to talk about this next week as obviously this is going to uh, spin a cycle through the media uh, in the days to come. And we'll uh, continue with this discussion uh, next week when Gray Matters returns. Thanks to Andrew for engineering. Stay tuned to Yazoo City Calling coming up next year on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I hope we got some more 78s coming tonight. Uh, that sounds really good. But uh, whatever the format, the music is authentic, real American art. Enjoy. Making Ed and Tampa Joe in the background doing ringing that thing. 
which is uh, off of a CD that was originally recorded onto 